Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. Good morning. Uh, welcome to AEI and welcome uh, to our program today, The Value of Our Veterans, a conversation with representatives uh, Mike Levin and uh, Brad Winstrup. Uh, I'm Gary Schmidt. I'm a senior scholar here in strategic studies at the American Enterprise Institute, and I'm director of AEI's program on American citizenship. Uh, so let me begin by just giving a quick overview of the, of the proceedings today. We will first hear from uh, Representative Mike Levin, uh, the recently elected congressman from the, California's 49th District. Congressman Levin is the chair of the Subcommittee on Eco Economic Opportunity of the House Veterans Affairs Committee. Following his remarks, we'll hear from former Veterans Affair, Affairs Committee member, Rep Representative Brad Winstrup. The congressman represents the Ohio 2nd District, which runs from the outskirts and parts of Cincinnati to parts east. Uh, we're really pleased that the congressman can join us again here at AEI. After that discussion, we will then switch to a panel discussion with Cynthia Gilman of the Henry Jackson Foundation for Military Medicine, Mike Hutchings of Combined Arms, uh, Rory Riley Topping of Riley Topping Consulting, Consulting, and my colleague Rebecca Burgess from AEI. Now, just let me make a conclude by noting that Veterans Affairs and Veteran Policies is a subject uh, which AEI scholars such as Sally Sattel, Giselle Donnelly, Rebecca, and I have been writing about for some time. But writing about policy is one thing, actually producing legislation, improving veterans' lives is quite another which is why we're especially delighted to have Chairman Levin and, and Congressman Winstrup with us today. They are the bipartisan co-sponsors of the Veterans Education Transition and Opportunity Prioritization Plan, also known as VET-OP Act of 19, uh, 2019, a measure that passed in the House in late May. Please join me in welcoming uh, Congressman Mike Levin and Brad Winstrup. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for uh, being here. I'm grateful to uh, have a somewhat free day, uh, and no better way to begin that day than to talk about uh, the most rewarding aspect of my service so far uh, in Washington, D.C., which has been um, the ability to chair a subcommittee on the House Veterans Affairs Committee dealing with housing, homelessness, workforce development, transition assistance. Uh, it is an incredible opportunity, particularly for a freshman, uh, one that I take seriously every day. Uh, and uh, I'm honored to, to have that chance. Uh, I'm grateful also uh, to my colleagues across the aisle. Uh, the House Veterans Affairs Committee is perhaps the most bipartisan place in Congress. There are a lot of uh, interesting stories going around Washington right now, uh, but the story that isn't told nearly often enough is the story of bipartisanship that still happens uh, on a daily basis in Washington. And uh, our work uh, in HVAC is, uh, I think, the best representation of that. I often say that uh, most of the time, if you were to turn off the video and just listen to the audio in our hearings and in our uh, subcommittee in particular, uh, you wouldn't know who the Republicans were. You wouldn't know who the Democrats were. Uh, we're all there in the service of our veterans and the service of our country. 
The other good news is that we're actually passing bills. You, you don't often hear about that in the press either, but in our HVAC committee, I think we've considered something like 40 bills. We've passed over half of them, and I'm honored that six of the bills that I helped to introduce, each with a Republican, has passed the House of Representatives. And I'm encouraged that I think a lot of these can get over the finish line in the Senate as well, particularly at a time when we may doubt that uh, much legislation coming from the House is actually going to get floor time and pass the Senate. Uh, I think uh, some of these initiatives actually will become law, which is really exciting. So if you'll entertain me, I would just very briefly like to explain uh, these six bills. Uh, one of them is uh, with uh, Representative Wenstrup, and I'm very grateful uh, for your leading the way with uh, the VetOp Act. And what it would do is create a fourth administration at the VA. Uh, it's a somewhat uh, controversial plan with the VA, but everybody else wants it. All the VSOs want it. All the veterans I talk to want it because what would happen is you would be able to separate the core work for economic opportunity from the Benefits Administration. The vast majority of staffing and resources at the Benefits Administration are directed towards things like disability compensation and pension claims, but there has been a lack of oversight and accountability uh, towards the distribution of other benefits, such as the Forever GI Bill, Voc Rehab, Home Loan Benefits, and the VA's portion of the Transition Assistance Program. It's outdated, the structure that's there now, and it's undermining the benefits that our veterans have rightly earned. And so what we'd have to do is restructure existing resources. It would actually eliminate red tape rather than create more red tape. Uh, and again, everybody that I speak with, the actual veterans that will be impacted, very much want this to happen. And hopefully the VA will come around. It might make things a little bit more difficult for certain people at the VA in the short term, but the long-term impact and the gains that our veterans will experience as a result of this restructuring, uh, I think will be uh, very welcome over time. Also wanted to, to mention some of these other bills. So we have one to support disabled veterans housing, especially adapted housing, it just passed. That's one where I think we have a great shot of getting it through because there's a Senate, Senate companion bill. We want to improve the TAP program. My friend uh, Jody Arrington has uh, been a champion of this, and uh, he had a friend, uh, Bill Mulder, who passed away after service uh, in Iraq. Mr. Arrington is confident that had his friend had better transition assistance, perhaps more off-base transition assistance, more of a wraparound of a, a support uh, system that uh, his friend may have uh, had the uh, opportunity to uh, go on and have a more successful post-service career. We have another one on mental health access. There is uh, a bill that we're doing to uh, expand the access to the VA vet centers to others, such as those who served in the National Guard or the Reserves, but still saw you know, a, a significant uh, amount of combat where uh, you know, clearly the VA vet centers ought to be available to them as well. And then we're trying to also protect uh, our veterans when they go to take out a VA loan. I have a bill uh, with Andy Barr that would uh, help uh, fix that. Uh, another on STEM scholarships that would make the requirements under the Forever GI Bill for a STEM scholarship actually commensurate with what most programs are offering. A lot of these uh, are hopefully going to be non-controversial, even in today's Washington. But what I've seen is that all the partisanship, all the rhetoric seems to be set aside in service of 
uh, our veterans, and it, it should be that way. I hope it's always that way. I can tell you that I have no greater honor than uh, being on the HVAC committee, and what I didn't expect is that my service on the House Veterans Affairs Committee was, would, would be as rewarding uh, as it is. Uh, so in the spirit of bipartisanship, you're going to hear from uh, Representative Wenstrup. Well, thank you very much. Again, thank you all for being here this morning. It is a, a pleasure to be with you, especially to talk about this particular topic. Um, Mike, you're, you're exactly right when you talk about the VA committee. And, and, and I would also share this. The VA committee is probably the top committee when it comes to bipartisanship, but a lot of it exists on the other committees as well, just uh, not always at the end of the day. Um, and I had a reporter at home one time say something about that, and I said, well, how, how many members of Congress can you name? And it was only about 10. And it was pretty much the names of the people that you see every evening on cable TV. And I said, what do you think the rest of us are doing all day? Uh, but the VA committee is a place uh, where, where you do get a lot of things done. I look back on the Forever GI Bill, the VA Mission Act that was passed. The VA Mission Act was co-sponsored by every member of the committee, and I don't think there's too many times you can say that in any other committee. And, th and that's a big bill. That was a big bill that got a lot done. So I, I agree, it was always a pleasure to walk into the VA committee room because you know you're gonna have good conversation that uh, is very serious and, and professional in every way as you're taking care of the veterans. So in, in particular, you know, this, this particular bill, the Vet Op Act, uh, was, was very important to me for a lot of reasons because it, what it does is it focuses on that transition, if you will, to, to civilian life and the opportunities that exist economically. So let me take you back a little bit. So for six years, I served on armed services and VA. I'm also a veteran. I served a year in Iraq, 05, 06, as, as a surgeon there. And when I came back from the war, I hadn't been home for 15 months. And as a reservist, somebody said, you, you, uh, you don't have to go back to work for 90 days. And I said, I'm going next week. I'm not going to sit around my house. And I think that's, that's the, the important factor. And that's easy for me, because I had a medical practice to go back to. But not everybody has that, that luxury. And at the time, you know, I was 47 years old. You know, for some people, they're 21 years old, 22 years old, and haven't had something that's been established over a long period of time. And you, you start to think about what you go through during that time. You know, it was very, very odd, because you come back and the rest of the country's just going about their business. You know, there's, there's gas at the pump, there's food at the store, and no one knows what you just really went through. And if you don't have somewhere to go and something to do, it's very different. There was, there was a book called uh, Faith of the American uh, Soldier, and it was mostly about how troops would get together and pray before their missions and do things like that. But there was one passage in there that caught me and it was about a soldier who was getting ready to come home. He had been in Iraq for a year, and they're at the Baghdad airport, and he, he begins to cry. And somebody said, why are you crying? We're going home. He said, because I don't think we'll ever be able to do as much for other people as we did here, and that I'm going to be bored, and it's going to seem mundane when I get home. And I think that that is, is very true in so, in so many ways. So why is this important? You know, my, my colleague friend here mentioned TAP, the TAP program, Transition Assistance Program. 
And you know, at one point that was more like, hey, you're getting out, here's your benefits, I just want you to know, you know what all you deserve after this and we'll see you later. And to me, it's much more important to go further back. So think about what the VA has had to do. They've had to be reactive to any conditions or problems that you may have. And I think a lot of those come from the fact that you were part of something big. You were part of something where you were needed every day. You were essential. And if you come back and you don't have somewhere to go and somewhere to drive forward, it's very challenging. Post-traumatic stress is very real. If you've been in that environment and see what you see, and that hasn't affected you in some way, shape, or form, then there's probably something wrong with you. But if you've been there and it does have an effect on you to some degree, I consider that normal and should be addressed to the level that you need it. But I think just as important is what, what I like to term as post-essential stress. You went from being so essential and so needed and then you may come back and have nothing. So it's important that you have a plan. And so is this within the VA is a great opportunity to make sure that we're really focusing on opportunity for, for veterans, not only when they first get out, but beyond that, that they continue to have opportunities. That to me is important. So for transition assistance, I wanna go back even further. I, I would love to see more and more that when you get recruited, you're a, you're a young man or woman that's thinking about joining the military and you get with a recruiter and the recruiter says, well, what do you want to do in the military? Uh, you know, I want to be a Marine. I want to be in the Army. I want to do infantry. Okay, well, here's what that path looks like. And imagine the recruiter right then and there saying, and what do you want to do after? Let's talk about that right now, too. And let's prepare that path. Because whether you're going to be in for four years or 24 years, let's talk about that. And when you're two years out from reenlistment, maybe you're having a conversation with a professional that's saying, okay, here's your path in the military if you want to stay in, and here's a path otherwise. Are you going to use your GI Bill? Are we going to get you into employment? Are we going to take your, the, everything you learned in the military and parlay that into a job? You know, if you graduate college and you get your degree and you don't have a job lined up and you don't know where you're going, that's not that great of a day. But if you take that uniform off and you know where you're going next and what the opportunities are, that's much better. And you look at it. You look at what happens as I talk about the VA being reactive. You know, most of the suicides that we hear so much about, they don't happen in uniform. They happen later. And I think they happen later because of that particular situation, if you have nowhere to go and no one around to understand what you've been through and to wake up every day with a purpose. That makes a difference. And that's what you have when you're in uniform. So I think all of these, these things are, are so very, very important as, as we move forward and try and craft legislation that helps our veterans. You know, in the Army now, we say soldier for life. Let's mean it. Let's mean it. Soldier for life, but we're going to be with you, and we're going to help you, and we're going to pass, guide out a path and a career for you. Imagine a parent who's sitting there who hears a recruiter say, what do you want to do afterwards? We want to get you there, too. That's huge. And this bill is a step in that direction. And as was mentioned, the TAP program, that's where we're going. When I was... Uh, on armed services and VA, 
This is a conversation we started having, and Jody Arrington has picked up that ball and, and run with it as well, with you, I'm sure, Mike, and I appreciate that so very much, because I think it's important. And let's break that stigma that so many have that was mentioned earlier. You know, I was at an event with um, Major League Baseball owners, and, and George Bush showed up unexpectedly. And the owners have him get up, and they said, well, what are you doing in town? He said, well, I'm here to work with veterans. I'm here to, here to help the veterans uh, as they're transitioning, help them figure out how to actually put together a resume and apply for a job. And he said, I tell them, when they ask you for your, for your qualifications and what your skills are, you can't just put sniper. You got to say, you know, I pay attention to detail. I show up uh, for, for work on time, and you can count on me. Those are the types of things that we've got to, got to do. And so there's so many people trying to help with this transition. We need to do our job uh, here in Congress to do everything that we can. And you know, I also, in, in the line of that stigma, I also met a, a veteran one time who'd lost both legs, and he was in a band playing guitar. And I began talking to him, and of course this was at a military event, and he said, you know, I'm not a wounded warrior, I'm still a warrior. And I think that uh, we should take a look at uh, all of those that served. And I think that most don't want your pity, they want you to appreciate what they've done and let you know that they're still in the game. Uh, let me introduce the panel very quickly. I'm gonna ask you all to talk about a little bit about the work you're doing, how that connects to this in a moment. But uh, to, uh, to my side here, I have Rory, Rory Riley Topping, uh, founder of uh, Riley Topping Consulting. Uh, and former House Veterans Affairs Staff Director. Uh, Mike Hutchins, Chief Development Officer at Combined Arms. Cynthia Gilman, Senior Vice President at the Henry M. Jackson Foundation, and Rebecca Burgess with AEI. Rebecca, let me start with you because when we're talking about this, this Vet Op Act, when we're talking about looking at benefits differently, we're really talking about a very different way of thinking about what VA delivers, what VA uh, provides to veterans. Um, shifting from that idea of sending checks out and making the checks get on time to a more proactive, a more detailed um, cooperation with the veteran on, on some of those uh, economic opportunity goals and some of those transition things and everything. So, look, you've been working on this for a while. Where are we? Are we getting any better? The congressman said they think VA is getting more personalized. VA is starting to, to step into this role more. Do, do you agree? It's trying very hard, right? Um, so it, it gets an A-plus on effort, on um, kindness efforts, um, as it always has. But where we're really lacking is in the intelligent kindness um, aspect of this, which is VA is so structured in a way that it is centered around disability and the idea that a veteran is the recipient of a check. And it's been this way since um, before 1930. So this week um, in 1930, Herbert Hoover um, sat down and said, this is a crazy system. We have all of these disability benefits um, and things for services for veterans that are being served through various different agencies. Let's bring them all together under one, one agency where we can um, get some accountability for this. And guess what? By 1989, when President Reagan made it a cabinet agency, the same discussion was happening um, about this being um, too much of an amalgamation of different programs that were being taken care of by different people. And when Senator Glenn helped push that through, the idea was still about how do we get um, benefits to veterans? How do we have some accountability for it? But no one in that entire almost 100 years ever asked, what is the end goal 
of our care and the services that the federal government gives to veterans. And we're still asking that same question. And I think on that score, VA has not done a good job of thinking through the long term of what is the end goal of what we're trying to do here. Is it simply deliver services to veterans or is it letting veterans be in the driver's seat of their, their own successful careers and lives um, as civilians after this? Rory, you've done quite a bit of work with the uh, with benefits, uh, veterans benefits issues, especially appeals issues. Talk, I mean, where where are we with that idea now? Is it just send out the check, deny the check, and not really think about the the concept behind why we're reimbursing these veterans, why we're trying to, uh, why we're sending this money out? Well, I think that there's a couple of things that interrelate to what Rebecca just said in terms of. You know, you asked about, you were on this stage a year ago, what kind of progress have we made? Where's the cooperation from VA? So I always make the analogy to judicial review for veterans, which we did not have for 200 years. The first Veterans Judicial Review Act was introduced in 1976, and it wasn't passed until when VA became a cabinet department in 1988. So these initiatives, particularly things that involve significant policy shifts, often take more time, I think, than a lot of us would like to see. But back to the point about just giving disability checks, statutorily, our disability compensation laws for veterans are designed to make up for the average impairment in earnings capacity. And when our ratings disability uh, codes were written, most of them were written in 1945. And so we had a very different economy. What uh, impacted your ability to work an orthopedic disability, for example, had a much greater impact on one's ability to work when we were a largely agrarian economy than it does today. Whereas the inverse is true today. If you have something um, like a mental health disability or a TBI, that's going to have a much greater impact on your average earnings capacity today. So um, VA has been working to update a lot of their rating systems. Likewise, that system has, uh, or that process, I should say, has taken a lot longer than I think a lot of people want to see. But you see that interrelation with, um, ultimately, we want to make veterans whole. And big picture, just giving them a check in and of itself isn't always what's going to make someone whole. We need to emphasize these other programs. Yeah, it was, um, I mean, it's, it's interesting because you, you need to update those ratings. You need to make sure that you're reflecting. But are, you, are your support programs also reflecting that change as well. If you're saying TBI is more significant in today's economy, are you then looking at what additional services you'll need to get those folks to the, to, to the employment they may want and, or, or they may need? Well, and I think you're right. And so I think the issue is, yes, people are looking at them, but they need to do more than just look at them. Um, you know, one of the, the phrases that we hear a lot is when we have these conversations, people often admire a problem. And instead of just admiring the problem and saying, yeah, you know, we should do more, it's uh, what does, you know, we talk about accountability. What does that look like? It's a great buzzword, but since the VA has been in existence, nobody's really been able to nail down and implement that. So I think we need to come together more around substance as opposed to just, just looking at these things. It's a start, but it's not enough. Mike and Cynthia, talk a little bit about what you guys are seeing, what your organizations are, are doing in this, in this area. So Mike, let's start with you. Sure. As, as you mentioned earlier, I'm the Chief Development Officer for Combined Arms. And Combined Arms is a forward-thinking nonprofit that intertwines collaboration and innovation in order to provide access to social services and resources to veterans 
in a fast and efficient manner. So really, we accomplish that in, in four different ways. The first is we have a, a co-working, collaborative, shared facility in Houston, Texas, which 56 um, nonprofit and government agencies all work together um, to, provide, to provide services to veterans. And this um, causes what we call intentional collaborative collisions as, as they're dealing with veteran intakes. Um, and as veterans are getting connected to services, you can pop over a cubicle and say, hey, I have this person. I can't provide this service. Can you guys work with them? So it's very, very quick to do lateral transfers and really get veterans um, connected qu quickly. The second thing that we have is an integrated technology system. So we utilize Salesforce, which is the number one CRM in the world. And utilizing Salesforce um, allows us to have lateral transfers, and we, of, we have a uh, tremendous amount of back-end customization, specifically for the veterans to make sure that we're capturing all the data and all the resources that they need. Um, and then the third thing that we have is upstream marketing. And really what we're trying to do there is work with the bases and the communities all around Texas to ensure that no veteran falls through the cracks, that we can get them before they transition from the service and get, wrap our arms around them and get them in the combined arms system. And then the fourth thing that we do is community engagement. So once veterans transition from, from the service, they go through the combined arms system and they have employment and, and they're working um, and have a great house. Um, in the Texas community, the next thing that we do in order to connect them to th their community and their tribe again is we have all of these different community levels. So we have affinity groups, and then we have um, community leaders. And through our affinity groups, we have everything that you can think of, Christian Veterans Network. Um, we have Eagle Scout Veterans Network, Vener Veterans in Energy, Veterans in Technology. Everything that you can think of under the sun, we have a group for it. And these groups hold 300 plus events a year and touch about 3,000 veterans within the Houston community. Altogether, in the past 36 months, uh, we've served 5,000 veterans. And of those 5,000 veterans, we've connected um, 17,000 uh, resource referral connections. So that means, on average, when a veteran is transitioning, they're looking for about three different services. And through the combined arms methodology with the 56 member organizations all working together, nonprofit, nonprofit and government agencies, we can fill the gaps and we can connect them to those services. Additionally, combined arms requires all of the 56 member organizations to respond to that veteran in 96 hours or less. So the veteran can either physically show up to our location in Houston or they can do an intake survey on combined arms and 96 hours or less, we require them, we track everything, we hold those organizations accountable to make sure that the veterans get the resources that they need. Cynthia, talk a little bit about the foundation. The Henry M. Jackson Foundation for the Advancement of Military Medicine was authorized by Congress about 36 years ago to serve at the intersection of military and civilian medicine and medical research. While we support about 800-ish programs, research programs, globally at any given time, um, we also look for opportunities to fill gaps that exist. And about eight years ago, we saw a big gap, and that was that we had many service members leaving active duty service, transitioning home with billions of dollars being spent to assist in that transition experience with absolutely no data to guide us in terms of who needed what services and what services did and didn't actually work. So HAF took that on. Uh, we facilitated a public-private research project. And 
worked very closely with the VA and academia and the private sector to launch what is a study that's still ongoing. It's called the Veteran Metrics Initiative Study, or TVMI for short. And it is looking exactly at that question. Who needs services and of the services that can be provided by both the public, VA, DOD sectors predominantly, and the private uh, sectors, what actually moves the needle? And uh, we have just completed the six of our six planned waves of data collection. Uh, we were able to recruit a very large cohort. We actually reached out to nearly 50,000 men and women from across all services to include Guard and Reserve, inviting them to participate in this study. Because it was privately funded predominantly, we were able to incentivize folks to stay with us every uh, step of the way. And in fact, we had so many people wanting to come back after wave after wave that we found ourselves ha having to close our waves down early. And that's kind of an unprecedented problem to have in the longitudinal uh, business. So we have just completed our three-year look at that transition experience. We are collecting data from the same cohort every six months of the 50,000 who we invited, about 9,600 participated. So we are in the process of continuing to look at, examine, speak about, and publish on the findings that we are getting. Now, I want to ask you a little bit more about the findings in a minute, but I, I, I want to ask both of you, and I'm, I'm trying to think of how to phrase this so I don't get myself in trouble, why do we need your organizations? Shouldn't, aren't these things the VA and the DOD should be doing? Are these, these guys, I mean, we're, we're 18 years into the current wars. Um, this is not a new problem. We've had veterans coming back. We've had these transition issues. Why are we still seeing these, these gaps here? What I would say is, Combined Arms was built by veterans. It's run by veterans. Mm -hmm. It was the idea would, came over a couple guys drinking a beer one night and saying, "There's all these gaps That's in all services, good ideas too. right? There's all these <laughs> gaps in services. These organizations are not moving fast enough. These veterans need services. Why don't we get everyone to work together? We'll be the backbone organization, and we can make this happen." So that's what we did. Where my concerns lie is the flexibility and speed of the organizations to maintain this long term. We have 56 member organizations, so 56 different organizations working together, and we're working all the time. So I have concerns that the VA would be able to, to handle something. I mean, there's 1.6 million veterans in Texas, 300,000 in Houston. They're coming in and out of our door every day. You know, we're working almost 24-7, and I, I just have concerns at a larger level and a sustainable level um, of the ability to provide services to veterans. And Cynthia, you're partnering with VA on some of this research, so it's not, it's not completely the, like they, they've ignored this, but why, I mean, why does an outside force have to be pushing VA to, to do this or to be, to be looking at these things? A service member spends time on active duty and is within the DOD system. He or she gets out and is eligible for VA benefits. The one universal truth, though, is people do not go home to federal agencies. They go home to communities. So we wanted to take a look at the transition experience across the board. And I think the DOD does a fantastic job looking within the purview of the DOD. The VA does the same. But we wanted to bring all parties together. 
One of the one of the things with all of these transition programs and, and elevating them that, that comes up, and Rebecca and I, you, you and I have talked about this a couple of times, is this idea of trying to balance the the narrative of the broken veteran who can't who can't figure this out and comes back and can't find a job with the reality of folks who may need assistance but don't you know aren't aren't a mess, aren't aren't somebody who uh, who is on the brink of, of homelessness and emotional breakdown and all the sort of stereotypes that you may see out there. So is there, I don't want to say a concern, but how do you, how do you balance, you know, elevating these programs, making this information uh, more available with that idea of perpetuating the narrative? Now, Rebecca, why don't you, why don't you start? Because we've talked about this. So I think you start by thinking that the veteran um, has a life after service that um, involves being a fully functional member of, of society and that the highest highs that they reached in their military service were nothing compared to maybe the highs that they will reach afterwards, which gives you a very different perspective about how you think about their health. You start thinking about whole health models, and that is what kind of helps you see that they might have particular issues, problems, uh, challenges at the moment, and you have to ask yourself which ones of these are permanent um, and which one of these are for a moment that can be healed and that we can move forward. So VA still has no, no measures in place, no mechanisms in place that ask, require, or even, even kind of suggest that maybe getting some health, some mental health assistance should be not just premised, but should be with a view towards healing, that maybe you should be seeking improvement. Um, it has no mechanisms in place for that, which then tells you that it's not about improving yourself. It's just about maintenance of you at a particular level. And then you have to ask, what is that particular level? Is it simply receiving a check that tells you that you, in the eyes of this federal agency, are worth X amount of dollars, which is not a way to live. That doesn't give you an identity that actually gives you the, the motivation and the purpose towards a successful life, which we know from so much data, um, not, just, not just around veterans, but about societies and, 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 and individuals is that that sense of identity is the thing that actually motivates you and gives you the purpose to have a fully functional life. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.